0: morning everyone yeah. um so i think just to say what we felt would be a really good idea would be just to read through the first chapter of revelation so we're going to be mainly focusing on the letters which start in chapter two but in order to really get our understanding this week is the introduction where I'm going to say a little bit about the the history and the context and a little bit about the structure of the letters, what they are. And then we're going to spend the next couple of months going through each of the seven letters, different speakers, and then a chance to discuss what we think they are. So before we go into that, I think just so that particularly those of you who have either never really read Revelation before or who haven't read it for a while, um, it would be great to just start with chapter one. Um, It's got about 20 verses, um, and I think it works really nicely if different people will read a section for us. Um, There's probably three major sections, but the last bit we could split up a bit. So if I start off with the prologue, um, if a couple of people would come in and read the next sections for us, that would be absolutely fantastic. So it's Revelation chapter one, verse one. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near.
1: John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is
2: and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that arouse in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches.
0: Amen. Brilliant. Thank you all very much um, for reading those sections. And what I'm going to try and do this morning in the next half an hour or so is just to unpack a little bit of this book and its context so that we get an idea of where it sits in the Bible and what the letters mean. Um, So we're going, first of all, just to focus on the word revelation, because that should be fairly straightforward for people. Um, Its root is, as you would expect, so it means revealing things. And it's come to mean revealing things about heaven that will have an impact on earth. Now, as well as being called Revelation, it originally was called Apocalypse. um, And it was usually called the Apocalypse of John, who, as you've already noted from chapter one, is generally thought to have written this. So, apocalypse is a word which we've now come to associate with the end of the world and usually with a big disaster. So, if you Googled it, if you looked and saw what is apocalypse, you would probably find a definition that says disaster, end of world, massive battle, etc. But actually, the original word word apocalypse means uncovering or revealing, which, of course, is exactly the same word as the idea of revelation. So this is not something that is meant to be really difficult to understand or really confusing or is meant to be hidden. In fact, it's the opposite. What this is meant to be is a revealing, a releasing, or an uncovering um, of essentially a vision or a picture that was given. And this kind of writing is is not that usual in the Bible. And as we've probably picked up, those of us who've read um, particularly the New Testament, much of the New Testament after the Gospels is really letters, But there are examples of this kind of revelatory, um, visionary writing throughout the whole Bible, starting right back in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel, where Daniel has dreams and visions and talks about things that are to come. And as you're probably aware, sitting there, there are lots of people who've got some really strong views about um, revelation, about the book, about what it means. And in many ways, this book, Revelation, is probably one which has caused more debate and disagreement um, since it was written than any other. And some of this, I think, is due to the fact that it's a very different style of writing than we're used to. We, We know what letters are. We probably write letters. Some of us, some of us still write letters. Um, But apocalyptic writing has got loads and loads of imagery and symbols in it. And while some of the symbols are explained and you'll have seen that the churches have been explained and there's some explanations even in chapter one. Some of the things that are written about are actually not explained at all. They're left with us to just understand or try and understand now you're either going to be really pleased or pretty disappointed that in the series that we're going to be looking at we're not going to be unpacking all of the theology of the end times which is commonly known as eschatology Um, but what we are going to be doing specifically is focusing on these seven letters which are forms that we understand which are quite common in the new testament and which come at the start of Revelation. And what we're gonna be looking at really carefully is what Jesus is saying through his messengers to each of seven major churches at the time in Asia. And as we do it, um, the church leaders at Epping Forest Community Church are really keen for us to be reflecting on what God is saying to us At EFCC as a church today. So you might want to think if a letter like this was being written by Jesus to Epping Forest Community Church right now, what might it say? And if you've got any thoughts about this, or if you've got any prophetic revelation yourself, any words, any feelings, if you have dreams or visions about this, or if you've got strong views about what you feel God is saying to our church now, please share these with Rich or with the other church leaders, with your home group leaders, because I know that our leaders really want to hear about what the message from God is for our church at the moment. So as you've just seen, Revelation chapter one starts with the words, this is the revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant, John. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. And chapter one clearly says this is written to the seven churches in the province of asia later on we read that john was on the island of patmos on the lord's day in the spirit so this is actually really quite clearly defining the audience the writer and the time of this letter it's considered generally to be one of the last of the books of the new testament and of the bible to be written And it's really clear that we're talking about a revealed word, word which the spirit of God, which Jesus has given through the angels to John, who is assumed to be one of the disciples, um, one of the first disciples and one of the disciples that Jesus loved. Now, I want to start by talking about blessings, because we started the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the Beatitudes, which are the blessings which are piled up there at the start of the sermon for the poor in heart, for the poor in spirit, for those who mourn. Um, And so we know from the start of this book, Revelation, there is a clear blessing for anyone who reads the words of the prophecy aloud. So it was a good move of riches to say that we're going to read this whole chapter together because you've already piled up a blessing for yourself if you've read through it. And I really recommend if you want an easy blessing from God, read this book aloud um, because there's a clear blessing for you in it. The second blessing is if you hear and take to heart what is written. So if you want a double blessing from Jesus, even today, read those words, hear them and take them to heart. And that idea of taking to heart is an echo of what we also found in the Sermon on on the Mount, that Jesus wants us not just to be hearers of his word, but doers. We need to not just be people who read and read or listen and listen, but we need to take what we read and put it into practice. Now, there's a time frame within which these events are meant to take place. Twice in chapter one, we read that the events are going to happen soon. John speaks about what is going to take place soon. And then later on, he says, these are the things that the time is near. So if you are reading this book in its entirety, you will see that the prophecies are really quite elaborate as we move forward. And the intense activity has given all kinds of different um, expectations of what this means. Many people do believe that this is about a graphic end of the world scenario when Jesus is going to return. I think there is probably at least three ways that we can read the entire book. Although it won't surprise you to know that many people think that there are as many as eight different ways we can read this book. The first one, I would say, is the pretty literal interpretation that this is a graphic, pictorial way of seeing what is going to happen at the end of the world, which would be a literal end of the world when jesus returns the devil and his forces are fought but defeated and then there's a new heaven and a new earth that are established and some people have gone a really long way into trying to define exactly what each of these things represent the order in which things happen and you won't be surprised to know that there is some discussion and debate about exactly when these things happen what happens first And there are all kinds of definitions of these terms. Secondly, there's a very specific group of people who believe that this is a prophetic word about what was gonna happen to the early church in the first century. And so those people believe that much of this book has actually already come to pass. And much of it refers to the end of the temple in Jerusalem in about AD 70 under the Roman Emperor Titus. And there are people, um, evangelical Christians even, who believe that much of this book is about what was gonna happen to the early church in the first century, and the persecutions that would come for Christians under the Romans during that time. Now, there is then a third group of people who say, do you know what? Actually, we don't have to pin this down to one thing that happened in the first century or to an eschatological and end time view of what's going to happen at some point in the future. Both of those things can exist together. And their argument would be that it is a prophetic word and it's a word of encouragement to hold on to the early church and to all Christians who are going to come through the centuries as they wait for the return of the Lord. And those people tend to say, don't spend forever trying to work out exactly the time frame for everything, but hold on to the promises of Jesus, hold on to doing what he asks us to do, and all will be revealed at the right time. Now, there are other ways that you can re- read these books, but I would say that those are the main ways that we can read them. And one thing is really clear, which I would hope um, none of us would probably dispute, and that is Jesus hasn't returned for a second time yet. So, what we're going to do, rather than spend lots of weeks looking at the interpretations and which is closest, we're going to look at the messages that Jesus gave to those first seven churches through visions received by John. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at what we can learn as a church from it. Now it's really clear in chapter one that John sees somebody who looks like a son of man who is holding things in each hand. And most commentators think that the son of man was Jesus. And in each hand, he's got different things. And chapter one is really clear. The seven stars in his right hand are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches. And that the seven lampstands, which we assume are held in his left hand, are the seven churches that are going to receive these letters. So what we're going to be looking through are letters which look like they were written to each of the seven major churches in Asia. So most of these are in what we would call modern day Turkey, Um, but there is also obviously Turkey is next to Greece and Patmos is an island which still exists today, which is one of the Greek islands near Kos, um, Patmos and Samos. So these are real places and these are real churches that receive the letters. Now, the interesting thing is, it's not exactly clear whether there were seven letters that were written and then John gathered them together and put them together in this book, or whether actually these are symbolic letters that were being written and that were designed to be part of this single book, which has got a single message for the churches across the whole of the world as it was known at that time. And part of the reason for this is the structure of these letters is very, very similar. So each letter, as we go through, you will see it's set out in a really similar way. So what I'm going to do is just go through a little bit of these six parts To each of the letters. And hopefully, rather than just sounding like a boring kind of structural analysis, what I want to do is try and give you a little bit of excitement and hope and joy as we do it. So, the first thing is, as you know from any letters that you've read, virtually all letters have an introduction. And these letters at the start of Revelation have this phrase it's always the same, and it says, These are the words of. And then what normally comes is a line which refers to Jesus in a pictorial way and which makes a point about Jesus's power, his stature or his nature. And these are deliberately put there to link to what comes in that letter. So, for example, it says something like these are the words of him who died and came to life. That's what we get for Smyrna. And then the message is keep going, because basically you will also get a crown of life if you um, resist all of the temptations and you persevere to the end. So the point is, it's not just saying these are the words of Jesus or these are the words of somebody who's amazing. There's a direct link between these are the words of him who died and came to life and then the message that the church gets and the promises for that church. There's no statement which is just saying God is God for the sake of it. There's always a link and the link then links to a statement. Which is quite an interesting statement because every statement says, I know. So we've got the structure of these are the words of and then I know. Now, it's no surprise that God knows, because one of the things that we've always known about God is as well as being omnipotent, "omni" meaning all and potent meaning powerful, God is omniscient, and omniscient means all-knowing. So omni is all, seant is linked to science, which means knowledge. So we've got a God who is all-knowing. And that can be really scary, but it's also really reassuring. So here you've got Jesus saying, I know your deeds. In other words, I know what you do. Most of the time, it's seen as good things. I know your deeds, they are good. But sometimes the deeds we do or the things we do are seen as superficial. And once Jesus even says this slightly scary phrase, I know where you live, which is the kind of thing that you would normally associate with a threat, which would be very, very scary. Um, However, What I want to really say is the way that this is structured is the knowledge that Jesus has about us. The intimacy is linked with a statement which is virtually always part um, gratitude or promise, positive things, and part warning. So sometimes we get something like, I know how hard it is for you yet you persevere. Other times we get, I know you do these kind of things which seem good, yet I've got this against you, that you're not doing this or that you've missed this or that you actually live in a way that I'm not pleased with. So what we're going to see is a pivotal word like yet or nevertheless or however, where there's a bit of a balance. Now, because of these letters, what you'll see God is basically doing, what Jesus is doing, what John is doing, is not just saying to any of these churches, well done, everything's perfect. But there's this encouragement, this challenge, this warning, which says, yet you could do so much more, you could be so much more. And what I want to say to you is that these commands we're going to get, which is the next section of each letter, are not designed to make us feel like rubbish. Even the strongest of these commands, even the bluntest of these phrases are not designed to make us give up. Far from it. If you look at all of these letters, what they're designed to do is exactly what Mike was saying to us a bit earlier today. They're designed as encouragement that we have a relationship with the King of Kings, with the one who has died to save us, with the one who's defeated death. So when we get these words of invite, advice, these encouragement, these imperatives, They are words of authority that Jesus is saying to us so that we too can have eternal life. And if you look at these, these are verbs and they come up in every letter and they are blunt commands to do things. So we read, first of all, in the first letter, consider, which is a verb, which is something we should be doing. And then you get repent. In the second letter, you get don't be afraid. And then you get be faithful. In the third letter, you get repent. In the fourth letter, you get repent and hold on. In the fifth letter, you get remember and hold fast and repent. In the sixth letter, you just get hold on. And then in the last letter, you get be earnest or be sincere and repent. So what we're basically saying is that five of the seven letters have got repent, which we know means turn away, turn around, turn to God. In half of them, often with repent, we get hold on or hold fast or be faithful. And in fact, the good news for us as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount is we know that these verbs, these words are present continuous. So in other words, they are keep on holding on. Don't give up. Don't um, turn away. Don't take the easy path. Don't take the broad path, which leads to destruction. But hold fast, hold on and keep turning back. So the good news here is this is not a condemnatory um, approach. This is an approach that says keep on turning back. Every time you're tempted or you fall, you can always turn back. And the great news is there's also the phrase remember a couple of times, which reminds us as listeners now and them as the early church To think about better times, to think about the faithfulness of God, to think about the character of God and to think about the things that God has done for us. So that section is about commands, but it's couched in um, the goodness, the faithfulness of God. And then we move on. In every letter, there is a promise. So it's great to see that God does command us to do things, but he also starts with promises to us. And the promise is always to the one who is victorious. And what we know is the victory comes essentially from two things. It comes from the blood of the lamb and it comes from the word of our testimony, We're going to see that later on in Revelation. So what Jesus is basically saying is the blood of the lamb has done it all for us. And the word of our testimony is our continuous um, speaking out of the good things that Jesus has done for us. Um, And of course, those of you who know that bit of Revelation will know it's the blood of the lamb, the word of the testimony. And by loving not our lives, even unto death, which is a strong word for the early church and which is a word for us now. We take up our cross and we follow Jesus daily. So the promises are all about eternal life, but they are all slightly different. And what I'm going to encourage those people who are going to be doing these talks to do is to try and share with us Why that particular promise at that particular time for that particular church? And what we know as a church in the 21st century is that God has specific words for us for specific times in our specific circumstances. And many of us on this call will know there are times when we have specific words that are given to us that are relevant for us bang on at that precise time. And that is part of revelation. It's part of things being made clear, clarified for us, just at the very time that we need them to be. So the promises are the right to eat from the tree of life, which I have to say is one of my favourites because it's got this beautiful... um, circular nature to it that at the very start of the bible in the garden of eden there's a tree of life and a tree of knowledge of good and evil and we're kicked out of the tree of life but in revelation at the end of the bible there's the promise that we will be able to eat from the tree of life again so in other words everything that was taken is restored through jesus which for me is a brilliant promise as well as the tree of life we get the right not to be hurt by the second death. We get the right to receive hidden manna with a new name on a white precious stone. We get authority over the nations. We get the right to be dressed in white, never blotted out, to be acknowledged by Jesus. We get the right to be a pillar in the temple written on with the name of God. And we get the right, perhaps the greatest of all of these promises, to sit on Jesus's throne, which is a really interesting one when you think about it. That is a powerful, powerful promise. We don't get just the right to have eternal life. We get the right to sit on the throne with Jesus. So it's going to have to be one heck of a big throne because there will be a lot of people sat on it. But that is the promise. And I don't want to get into the whole idea of kind of, quite where the throne is and whether it's in heaven, whether it's on the new earth, how it works, the promise is clear. We get to reign and to rule with Jesus if we keep on keeping on. And then after those promises, we get a word of encouragement. Um, And many people call this the exhortation. So this is Jesus saying, you've heard all of these. You've heard these promises Whoever's got ears, which it looks like is everybody on this call, whoever's got ears, let him hear these words. So in other words, don't just listen to these words and then go away and go back into your normal everyday life. Listen to these words and then do what they say. So these promises are really encouraging. The encouragement at the end is a final reminder. And I think what you're going to see as we go through this book is that each of those letters are individually for the churches they are written to. The message is really simple then for us. And I want to just unpack this for five or so minutes as we come to the end of this. So the message underlying this structure is God communicates. God knows us. He knows what we're doing and he treats us individually. God praises us and he also warns us and he sometimes praises us and warns us at the same time. And God guides us. He doesn't just leave us to do whatever we want to do. He gives us direction into the things that he wants. And he does that partly by promising us good things. So we've said already this morning that prophecy is exciting. It's very key in the early church. It's very clearly one of the gifts that we're encouraged um, to seek. And that's because it's about God directly communicating with his people today. And I want to be really clear. We are a church that believes God communicates supernaturally today. Not every church believes that, um, but we do. We believe that the spirit of God is in believers to prophetically speak and to bring the word of God to people right now. We have the Bible, which is the fantastic word of God. We also have the spirit of God in us, who enables us to hear his words today. So God is a communicating God. He brings messages to people today. Secondly, God treats us as individuals. That's a really key thing for us to remember that although the structure of these letters is the same, the messages are different. And the message for us as a church today is going to be different, although it will have some of the same features as the message for those churches. Equally, God is a God who wants to warn us. He doesn't want just to suddenly throw us into a place where we don't expect. He is urging us through the Bible, through the New Testament, through prophetic words, to be the very best we can be. And he's full of praise for us, even when he delivers a hard message. So we know that these words ring true with us, and they are spurring us on to become more like Jesus, to become the very best we can be. And this links quite a bit with some messages we've heard over the last few months about um, the Lord being our shepherd, God being our guide, God being the one who leads us into green pastures. He doesn't want us to walk with him onto a motorway where we're going to have to dodge all of these vehicles. He wants to take us into green pastures. He doesn't want to be screaming and shouting at us. He wants to lead us to a place of joy and peace and comfort. And then the promises of God we know are all positive. We know the promises of God are yes and amen. They're good promises. They're designed for us to have everlasting joy, to have an everlasting relationship with him, to be known by him and to share in the riches of heaven, which have been graciously bought by Jesus at great cost. So what I hope is as we go through these letters, You're going to hear a little bit about the places that are mentioned in the titles. That will be a bit interesting. There's a bit of history there. But I also hope what you're going to be thinking and seeing is the structure, which is a brilliant structure, which has warnings and promises and exhortations. And finally, and probably most important, you're going to be able to reflect on the kind of message that Jesus might have for us as Epinfoys Community Church today, and also the kind of message that Jesus might have for the church today. Now, as we know, we're coming to a point where in the next couple of weeks, our country is going to have to reflect on whether we are going to emerge almost entirely back to where we were before pre-pandemic. Our church leaders at EFCC are really, really keen to hear in the midst of this massive shift that we think is coming. What is God saying to us right here, right now? So we want you to be encouraged to listen and we want to be encouraged by those words. What we're going to see is that the way that God speaks to his church in the first century is no different from the way that he ter- he speaks to his believers now. He speaks clearly. He speaks through people. He speaks in a structure that has sometimes warnings, always blessing, always the option of a promise if we turn and we repent. And so we're excited at this stage while we're looking back at the first century we are at a really pivotal moment for our country, for our world and for our church. What are the new things that God is bringing into being? Because we know he's the alpha and he's the omega. As Rob read, he's the beginning, he's the end. He's the yesterday, the today and the future promise. So we're excited as we go through this to hear very specifically what God has for us at EFCC. So that's all I really want to share as an intro. I hope you're going to be excited about this over the coming couple of months. There's a bit of history um, and there's also a bit of real contemporary relevance.